Hello, everybody. This is John Fusco, and you are listening to the No Film School podcast. The quality of this summer's offering of independent films has just been utterly ridiculous. There have already been so many new voices, new perspectives, and unique stories hitting the big screen. And now we can add Matt Spicer's Ingrid Goes West to the list as yet another standout title. The film, which earned the coveted Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at Sundance, follows Ingrid Thorburn, an unhinged social media stalker, frenetically brought to life by Aubrey Plaza, who moves to LA in an attempt to make friends with her latest obsession, the boho-chic social media influencer Taylor Sloan, a character that's oh-so-convincingly played by Elizabeth Olsen. Even with a hilarious cast and chuckle-worthy premise, it's hard to call Ingrid Goes West a comedy in the truest sense of the word, because, well, it is really, really creepy. The disturbing tone carefully planted beneath the film's shimmering Los Angeles foreground will stick with you long after you've left the theater. For Spicer, who penned the film along with David Branson Smith, this was the culmination of a 10-year journey from screenwriter to director. He joins us this week to discuss the steps he took to make this film happen, the pros and cons of social media's new role in the film industry, and how making a film is the only thing that can ever really prepare you for making a film. Hey guys, it's John Fusco, and I am here in Soho with Matt Spicer, the director of Ingrid Goes West. Hey Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) No problem. How's it going today? It's going good. You know, we're just talking a lot about the film, which is always exciting. The people actually care about hearing what we want to say and talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's a really great film. I got the chance to see it a few weeks ago. And I mean, the tone is just, it's very, uh, it's very disturbing. I was talking to my friend about it after because it's got such a, a, uh, sort of hook to it, I think, especially for, uh, the millennial culture or uh, the social media elite, I suppose. Right. You see the trailer and you you kind of go in expecting maybe it to be more of a comedy uh, than a disturbing sort of... Right. uh, I don't even know. Or like, I guess, not not a horror necessarily, but like a psychological, maybe maybe thriller. (laughs) Right. Not in the sense of like an action thriller. But uh, when you first started writing this script... Uh, where did that idea or that, uh, influence come from? Well, my co-writer Dave and I, we, we very much have the same taste in film. So that, you know, when we were sitting around talking about, you know, the films that we were referencing were, you know, Chuck and Buck, The Talented Mr. Ripley, King of Comedy, Nightcrawler, you know, um, you know, a lot of films that were about, anti-heroes, you know, and people that weren't necessarily role models or, uh, you know, people doing bad things and getting into the psychology of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's just where my taste lies. I like films that don't necessarily offer easy answers and kind of look at, um, you know, one of my favorite films is There Will Be Blood. And, I mean, I can't think of a maybe more unlikable main character. <laughs> and uh, But I also you know, see parts of myself in him, you know, there's a part of Daniel Plainview, I think in all of us. Um, and so it's, I find it interesting when films aren't afraid to explore that and, and aren't afraid to have, you know, unlikable protagonists, uh, doing, you know, unlikable things. 
from a writer's standpoint, uh, how does that decision to follow the anti-hero versus the hero uh, maybe spark creativity uh, in you? No, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I'm always, as a writer, I think drawn to underdogs and outsiders as characters. I just think that they're more interesting and it's more, I think people with who have their backs up against the wall are always more interesting than people who, you know, people at the end of their rope or, you know, someone who's on the outside trying to get in somewhere. Those are just always more interesting to me than stories about people who are already successful or seem to have it together. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, it's, um, it seems like there's some inherent conflict already there, them being like on the edge of society and trying to break in. Yeah, and I've always kind of seen myself in that in that way. You know, I I'm from a small town outside Philadelphia, and I wanted to get into the film industry. And I think, you know, it seemed so insurmountable at first. And and you you know you go on this long journey of you know trying to to do that and chip away at that goal. You know, and so I just I know what I I know what that's like, and I I I still in a, to in a to a degree feel like you know, an underdog, um, even though I've been very lucky, but, uh, and I think, it, I don't know, I just, as how I always see myself, uh, and I don't know, so that's, I just relate to those characters a lot more, and, and if you looked at my DVD collection, you know, or my Blu-ray collection at home, I think you'd see that thread sort of running through everything, um, of, you know, whether it's Badlands or Rushmore or whatever, you know, all the characters kind of have that thread of just, being either dreamers or outsiders, people with these sort of seemingly weird or unattainable goals. So let's talk a bit about your journey. Um, how did how did you get to the point where you were able to direct your first feature film? I know you were, uh, would you say you were a writer first and then that led to being on the other side of the camera or? It wasn't necessarily a natural thing. I mean, I was, it started with, I applied to USC film school and was lucky enough to get accepted there. And so that kind of made the decision to move to LA a lot easier right. because, you know, they, the, the production track is, it's, I think it's maybe only 50 kids or it was at the time. So it was, it was very selective. So I felt very lucky. Might have been more than that. I don't actually know. But um, it was, that was, it was a big deal. And I was like, okay, this is good. And this is a good sign. So, you know, I kind of, you know, drove cross country, moved to LA and did USC and, and made a lot of great friends there. And, you know, but there was that period, I think that everybody goes through post-college where you graduate and especially with a film degree, there's not any kind of clear path yeah. to, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting here vigorously shaking. My yeah. Head. <laughs> I mean, I think you, you fool yourself into thinking that you just are going to finish film school and then, you know, uh, the president of Hollywood shows up and is like, here's your first movie, you know, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, exactly. You've done it. Uh, and it just obviously does not happen like that at all. So I, I kind of had this post-grad freak out that I think a lot of people probably went through. Uh, and it was just like, what am I going to do? You know, and I contemplated, you know, should I even stay out here? Should I move home? I didn't have like a clear job to walk into. I think I had an internship, but um, I was working as a PA on infomercials and stuff and just literally the, the lowest grunt work that you can imagine. And uh, actually it was my uncle kind of had a heart to heart and he said to me he said well look you're what 22 
you know, give it a shot. He's like, even if you fail, you're still, you're still going to be what, 23, 24. And, and so, so what? So then you can, you have enough time to get it together. He's like, I'm in my thirties. I still don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And so that was a really, having that feeling like I had permission to fail was a, was huge because I felt a lot of pressure on myself. And so I kind of went back out, you know, with my tail between my legs, but was like, all right, I'm going to give it this a shot. And uh, I'd had this idea that I've been kicking around for a movie about a guy who, a regular guy who finds out that there's, uh, that someone has made a museum about his entire life. And, um, and so I called my, uh, my other writing partner, Max, who I was, I went to USC with and uh, we were good friends and we had had screenwriting class together and I pitched him this idea and he, I think was in a similar place to me. And he said, great, let's do it. Let's start writing tomorrow. And I was, I was at the time I was working as a PA on an infomercial for a mop. <laughs> and I literally, they were like, here's the call sheet for tomorrow. And I was like, actually I quit. I'm not coming in. <laughs> and I just peaced out and Max and I literally started writing that the next day. And, um, and it ended up being the script. It was our first script that we wrote called the ornate anatomy of living things. That's kind of a mouthful, but, um, that script, uh, we wrote that the summer after college and, and then we sent it around and, that ended up getting us some managers and and our agents, and we ended up getting signing a deal with Fox Searchlight to do a rewrite on it, which made us just enough money to get into the WGA and get us health insurance, but literally not enough money to even live on. So even though we were really excited about that, I still had to call my parents and ask them to for money. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. still like they were like, I was like, hey, we sold the script. They're like, oh great, and I was like, but I still need to borrow <laughs> some money from you guys. Uh, yeah. So, but it was, you know, that was, I think, a first sign of encouragement of saying, okay, maybe this is a potential career path. And, and you know, that it opened up, it ended up on the blacklist, which was at the new, a new, I think it was maybe in their second or third year at that point. And so it got, it got us just enough attention that it, it allowed us to book some other jobs and start actually making some money and not, and, and kept us from having to actually get real quote unquote jobs, you know, um, which was which was very nice because it was we were able to you know hone our craft in terms of like writing and and learning how to tell stories and so what kind of jobs were they were that they were screenwriting jobs or TV writing jobs or mostly f- yeah feature screenplays so we I have written some pilots over the years um, but nothing that's ever been made and you know ironically it was uh, you know I've been a writer now for. 10 years and but it wasn't until last year that anything I'd written had gone into production so it's you know (laughs) everyone you know uh, people have been asking me as we've been doing this press tour it's like what's the secret to getting your film in I'm like I don't know man I don't know what there's no shortcut you know patience I guess (laughs) I'm probably not the guy to ask yeah I'm like if you're looking for the sort of easy way uh you know it's been a long it feels like it's been a long road even though I'm like I don't feel that old but I'm like looking back I'm like oh my god it's been you know, 11 years since we graduated. We wrote uh, a script for Warner Independent uh, that was like a comedy about the end of the world. We wrote, it was kind of like our comedy version of The Leftovers, like before that uh-huh. came out. Okay. And then there was like a script that we wrote with our buddy Jonah that was called The Adventurer's Handbook. And then that was, that was kind of our biggest sale. That was like our big spec sale that, um, and it was very, we were so excited. We were convinced that movie was going to get made. And then that's, I think that's still floating around somewhere at Universal or whatever. We've tried to get that going over the years, but haven't had any luck with that. But, um, and then uh, sort of like I went through, I produced uh, Max's film Ceremony, which we shot in 2009. And that came out 
in 2011. And it was sort of going through that process. And that was sort of my grad school in a way, which right. was like actually seeing how film is made from script to the DVD release, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you're literally just, I got to be a, a, go through the entire process and learned a lot, a ton, you know, and really seeing the difference between what you learn in film school versus the real world application of, you know, um, you know, no one, uh, no one can really prepare you for the right. rigors of making a film and right. all the little detail things that, you know, you have to deal with on a day to day basis. And so, but I came out of that process feeling very inspired and feeling like, okay, I think it's time for me to actually, you know, I've had this great writing career, but how do I get back to directing, which is always what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wrote a, a feature script called Stockholm, uh, or I actually rewrote, my, my buddies wrote it. Um, and then, uh, but I was attached to direct it. And then I sort of did a pass on it, got that ready to go. And then um, went and made a short film, um, called it's not you it's me that i wrote with my brother that got into south by and so it was you know sort of that was when the the, you know the directing career sort of started and then tried to use the short film to help get stockholm off the ground and tried to do that for a couple years that was not quite working out and around 2015 i was getting very frustrated feeling like you know things were stalling out and kind of made the decision to, you know, put Stockholm on the back burner. And I didn't really have any idea. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I know I want to direct something, but I'm going to have to write something that's a lot more manageable than whatever that was, you know, which was a bank robbery film set in the 70s. So it was like not a really practical thing that you could make on a small budget. And um, I was just having lunch with Dave Smith one day and we were talking about social media and you know, it sort of led to this conversation of, I think it started as, well, what if, wouldn't it be funny if there was a single white female, but set in the world of social media, you know, and that's how the conversation started. But I think, you know, that really stuck in my head. And, and I was like, you know, there's something here, there's a really interesting thing. And I loved Instagram and had this kind of love hate relationship with it. Um, but I remember I called him up after our lunch a couple of days later and I was like, you know, still really thinking about that. Are you something you would be interested in writing with me? And, I could direct and he was game. And so, you know, we started outlining it and it really just went from there. Um, but anyway, that's a very long story, but you know, of just the winding road of getting to (laughs) direct this movie. I'm sort of interested in what you said about how you made this short to try and make a feature. Um, but it didn't end up really working out. What were the steps that you took, uh, in between that period of making the short and the feature that you, you were trying to kind of make yourself more uh, present on the directing uh, scene, I guess. Well, yeah, maybe, I'm sorry, I should have probably clarified. The, the short definitely did help because I remember when I, I wrote the script, and but I hadn't really, you know, the only thing I had directed in the last six years or whatever was my student films, you yeah. know, that were black and white 16 right. <laughs> literally, you know, the red camera didn't exist at the time of when I was in film school. So my film, my student films all looked like they were from the seventies or something, you know? Uh, and so I think I had this realization of, okay, I wrote the script. People seem to like it, but no one believes that I could actually direct, you know, this thing. And so the short film was sort of out of necessity of, okay, I need to actually do something that, to prove, show people what I'm capable of as a director. Cause I didn't, you know, and I also felt like I'd grown creatively since film school mm-hmm. as I would hope most people would. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and you know i got all the embarrassing you know films out of the way and and um so it definitely helped because you're sending out a script with and saying here's my short film and and people like the short film and it had been at south by which was like a great platform for it and i think it came out on uh jash uh which was like a youtube channel released it and um so it got it got some attention on there and that was really helpful. It just didn't, I think the problem actually was that the script I had written was, you know, I the I would need such high level cast to get the budget that I would needed for that script that was just never gonna, I was never gonna get as a first time director, you know? And it wasn't something that I had, you know, I, I had written it thinking, oh, this is such a cheap movie, but then you don't realize when you actually go to then, you know, budget it out, you're like, oh, it's period. Well, that instantly is, you know, a, a huge expense and it's you know there's action stuff and you need this many days to shoot it and suddenly it starts you can't shoot in LA you know so it starts racking up all these costs and um you know I had great producers but they were just like you know I think at a certain point we had taken enough shots at, at some big name actors and they had all passed because I was a first time director and they're huge names and they're like why well, am I gonna make 60 grand to go do this film that might not even be good, you know, or whatever. So I think it was that kind of just facing the realities of getting a movie made. And, you know, Ingrid really came out of us being saying to ourselves, well, we're not going to ask this one. We don't need permission. It, it takes place. We know where we can shoot this and we can ask for favors and we can get our friends to be in it if we need them to. And, you know, it's contemporary and it's all this and that. So we rewrote it from a place of saying, of learning, I learned from all the mistakes that I made on Stockholm as a first film to say, well, here we kind of said, well, let's knock down all those hurdles that I was facing on that film, mm-hmm. and um, and it ended up working out, you know. And then that was so that was a real learning experience, having gone through that, and you know, it really informed the the way that we wrote Ingrid because we wrote it to get rid of all that stuff. Right. It it seems like you know you you made that allegory or saying that no matter what you learn, in, and I'm not just saying this because we're no film school or whatever, but uh, no matter what you learn in film, film school, it's not really going to prepare you for that first uh, time. It's that first time that's really like the education that you need to like be able to go through and create, I guess, like the next step yeah. in what you're trying to do. Um, so then let's talk about Ingrid as that step. I'm personally you know, curious about what your thoughts are about social media what are the pros and cons about social media first i guess for just our generation but then it, it seems like it's becoming more and more of a crucial factor of how many followers you have mm-hmm. uh you know on instagram or twitter mm-hmm. or whatever in casting in building a reputation for yourself as a filmmaker where do you think the value in that lies or conversely how is it detrimental I mean, it's such a big topic. I mean, I think I have very conflicting feelings about it. I I love social media. I think it's an amazing tool for, uh, you know, whether it's for self-promotion, whether it's for connecting with other people, whether it's for surrounding yourself with viewpoints that are different from your own or from people who are in your immediate sort of circle. Um, But I think it can also bring out the worst in you in people and I think it gives you you know it's very anonymous or it can be very anonymous so it's easy to do things without any sort of repercussions or not really facing having to face any repercussions for things that you post or do or whatever um so I think it's you know it's like anything it's a double-edged sword and it's really depends on how you use it and what you're bringing to it um 
And, you know, my struggles with it are mostly it just it feeling so com- my use of it feeling compulsive and feeling like I'm not there's no intention behind it. I'm just like, oh, I'm standing in line waiting for a coffee. Let's check Instagram, see what everyone's up to. And it being that kind of just or I'm like feeling awkward at a party. Like, let's just look at my phone, you know, rather than stepping outside of my comfort zone and and introduce myself to somebody who I don't know, you know, like that kind of a thing where it becomes a retreat versus uh, a means of engagement mm-hmm. um, or it just becomes thoughtless, rote, like, you know, habit. As a director, would you rather cast someone who has like 10 million Instagram followers or would you rather cast someone who has like the talent to pull off the vision that you have in place? I mean, it's one of those, it's so frustrating when I hear that people cast people just based on how many followers they have because the reality is if if the pro- end product isn't good, it doesn't matter how many followers you have to promote it. People are going to smell it out and, and they're not going to want to see it, you right. know? And so I think if you find the perfect actor and they happen to have 10 million Instagram followers to promote it, great. Then you hit the jackpot, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I think the end product always has to be, I don't think people should ever choose someone who they think is maybe their second choice mm-hmm. just because they have more Instagram followers, like, or Twitter, Twitter followers. Is it a viable means of production? Like, will you really be able to raise more money if you have uh, someone that has that many followers that they can, like, reach out to? Oh, it definitely does. I mean, in terms of the studio level, I yeah. mean, they make definitely make decisions that way. I just think it's a really silly metric, you know, and it's a very corporate kind of way of looking at it. And it's frustrating because I think people with that perspective feel like, monkeys could do our job you know and i just think that's mm-hmm. i think that's ridiculous you yeah know? i think it's like there's a there's there's not a science to it it's an art you know and i think that you can't just plug numbers into a spreadsheet and expect a certain result you know um there's an alchemy to it that i think is beyond that so that's that always frustrates me when i hear stuff like that and but it is a great tool and i understand why they you know any way especially with stuff that's lower budget you know any way that you can get the word out about your thing that you're doing and and hopefully cut through the clutter obviously is useful i just don't think it should ever be the first decision that you make you know if you had i guess if you had two actors and you thought they were both perfect for the part and one of them has 10 million followers and one of them has a thousand followers well then yeah i guess maybe go with the guy who has 10 million followers but i just don't think it ever works out like that quite like that yeah but i will say ironically for a film about social media we cast O'Shea Aubrey actually reached out to him on via Twitter we didn't go through you know the proper channels in terms of approaching his agent uh and sending his agent the script and then waiting for him to read it whatever Aubrey you know this is what's great about having someone like Aubrey being one of your producers is that you know she he followed her on Twitter and I think they had they had met briefly or or at a award show and she just DM'd him and said, hey, like, you want to read the script? You want to do this movie with me? And then he, they ended up having a meeting after that because of that. And so we were able to back channel in a way. I think if we had gone through the sort of proper channels, uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten him in the movie. You know, so it, it does like there's a democratization to um, the process now that I think you can cut through a lot of the clutter because of social media and things will get attention because of social media that they wouldn't necessarily if you we are all forced to go through the sort of mainstream media or the regular channels like Mm -hmm. i mean we don't have as a film you know 
we're we're not in a position where we can buy TV ads for this movie. You know, so we're doing a lot of promotion via uh, the internet and yeah. via social media and all that stuff. And we're really relying on people like No Film School, you know, to 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 get the word out. And and so you have to, you know, you you have to hit attack more sort of angles and hit it from many different angles rather than just saying, you know, back in the old days, you could just say, all right, just go on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, yeah. <laughs> pump some TV ads out there, some trailers, and then we're all good. You know, it was a lot simpler. Now, you know, you have to. You're you're just like all right. We have to do a thousand interviews, yeah, you know, yeah. from all these different outlets, and hope that you know we find our our audience that way. But um, you know, but I think it's cool because I think you can a film like ours wouldn't have necessarily been successful with that old model. Maybe it would have, but but the fact is you can still be successful um, on a smaller scale and in a way in a different way because. Uh, if you make a film for a responsible budget, you know, and the correct budget, then I think there's there's an audience for any film out there. Um, and it's just a matter of how do I tap into that? So then my final question, I guess, would be, you know, we talked about how it's a double-edged sword. Um, for filmmakers, uh, you know, for, for young filmmakers, uh, for people who are growing up with, you know, Instagram and whatever, uh, I mean, Vine doesn't exist anymore, but right. a larger place to make content, like a larger landscape to make content in easier ways. Um, what would be your advice uh, to those filmmakers who can, you know, take advantage of these platforms to kind of, as you say, uh, make themselves present through the clutter? I mean, I think don't try to be like everybody else. You know, I think if you can find your own, you know, what's great about it and what I think is great about film school, not that it's necessary, but I think it allows you a safe place to hone your voice, your creative voice and find your voice because nobody comes right out of the box. Like whether you're the Coen brothers or, you know, Martin Scorsese, you know, these guys all had to find their voice over time, you know, by doing other things. And I think, uh, you know, like I was talking about the 10 years as a writer, it took me to get here. You know, I look back, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I'm struggling. I'm not, you know, why am I not breaking through in the way that I want to? But what I didn't realize is that th those 10 years was me finding my voice and honing that and, and developing my craft. And I think a lot of you know, I think there's value in that. And, and especially the the tools that are available, the fact that you can, I mean, you can shoot a film on your iPhone now that looks better than anything that any of the tools that I had when I was in film school, you know, 11, 12 years ago. That's crazy, you know. And so I think that's, I think that's really cool. And I just think it's, I think that's, an ex, it's an exciting time to be making content because there are so many different outlets for for people to make work and get it out there and so yeah i would just say you know trust your gut follow like you know and and find your voice and find you know tap into that thing that makes you different from everybody else you know um there's that uh i think it's a jean coteau quote that says um whatever people criticize you for embrace it that is you like that is what um the things that that make you stand out and different don't erase those things right. you know embrace them right um, and lean into that because that's going to be what gives you an identity and what separates you from the pack. Nick Offerman, before we close, I interviewed Nick Offerman, uh, earlier this year at South by Southwest and, you know, Aubrey Plaza, uh, Parks and Rec, but he said, 
uh, find whatever it is that like people used to call you weird for when you were a kid mm-hmm. and don't lose that, you know, like identify that Yes, and keep it there. Yeah, exactly. I think we're in, and what's exciting about being living in this moment, I think, I think is that that's being embraced and people are, are hungry for new voices and, and are hungry for new perspectives and, that's you know I think as a as a generation like let's all make a concerted effort to 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 embrace that and not try to and not try and run in the other direction you know I think as a as a, someone who consumes a lot of film and TV and movies the stuff that's most exciting to me is the stuff that feels like something I've never seen before mm-hmm. definitely I think that's a great note to end on thanks yeah. Matt thank you for having me I really appreciate it cool thanks for listening stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly next Thursday. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and rate us five stars on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tweet at me and tell me what you think about it. You can send all those great positive messages to at Jim underscore John underscore Jim, and I will see you on Thursday. Thank you. Bye.